Mark 15, verses 1 through 39. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, 
and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Hey everybody, good morning and uh, welcome to Christ Community Chapel. I am uh, really glad that you are here. Uh, welcome those of you in our e-service, those of you tuning in online. Uh, welcome. Well, this is uh, Palm Sunday, and ne- next week is Easter, which means that this week is the most important week of the Christian calendar. And we have uh, several things for you. We have uh, Door 2, our visual arts ministry, has put together an interactive experience called Who Is He? And that will be on Thursday and Friday, Friday night. We have our Good Friday services and then Saturday and Sunday, Easter. And I just want to encourage you, take advantage of as much as you can, because you don't know what will actually change your life. But I do know this, that the power to change your life completely is what we will be celebrating this week, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 15. Uh, If you have your own Bible or if you have a a smartphone or a tablet. If you want to use one of our Bibles uh, in the sanctuary here in the pews or over in East Hall, it's page 800. And I, I want you to know, too, if you don't have a Bible, it'd be our privilege to give you your first Bible. All you have to do is go by the, uh, to the Next Steps area, and we will give you a Bible. And in all Bibles, if you don't know your way around a Bible, there is a table of contents that will help you find your way around. All right? All right, so we have been going through this series on the Gospel of Mark, and we've called it Jesus, the One True King. And we're approaching the end of the Gospel, and it's actually the death of Jesus. And it's interesting to me that the kingship of Jesus is mentioned more in this passage than anywhere else in the book. All right, it starts with uh, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, and we're actually going to be focusing on the death of Jesus, not on Palm Sunday this Sunday, because, uh, spoiler alert, next Sunday we will be talking about the resurrection of Jesus, all right? That's also why in our kids' area last week they learned about Palm Sunday instead of learning about it this week. They they had little (laughs) two miniature donkeys down there in our kids' area. It's crazy. I mean, I love what our kids' team does. A little worried, but I love it, right? (laughs) But we wanted them to learn about Palm Sunday last week so that this week they could focus on exactly what we're going to focus on, which is the death of Jesus, right? So we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and then on the triumphal entry, Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, on a donkey, And when he does, people line the streets and they shout out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of our father, David, Hosanna in the highest. And that whole thing, all that they're saying, when they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that's their version of hail to the chief. Jesus wanted to make sure there was no mistake 
of who he was and what he was claiming to be when he rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And the authorities got that message loud and clear, which is why the kingship of Jesus is mentioned so many times. It's mentioned six times in this passage. Verse 2, it says, And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Uh, Verse 9, And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Verse 12, And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? Verse 18, They began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews, verse 26, and the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. Verse 32, let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. There are three things I want to pull out of this passage, and these are my three points. So if you're a note taker, you can write these down or just know where I'm going. I want to talk about the reason the king dies the reason the king dies, the way the king dies, and the result of the king's death. Okay, the reason the king dies, the way the king dies, the result of the king's death. First, the reason the king dies. These 39 verses, they're hard to read, aren't they? In 2004, Mel Gibson came out with a movie called The Passion of the Christ. It was the first time that Hollywood tried to capture the the brutality of all that happened to Jesus. You know, when it came out, I bought the DVD, and uh, I have watched it one time because I just couldn't bear to watch. It seems like everybody is going after Jesus, right? Pilate. Then you have the soldiers who take Jesus away. They dress him up. They mock him. They beat him. You got the religious leaders hurling insults at him. Even the criminals who are being crucified with him take their shots. There is so much hostility that is heaped on Jesus. It's the hostility we reserve for the worst of human beings. Why is Jesus the recipient of all that hostility? It wasn't because they hated his preaching. They weren't like really upset with the Sermon on the Mount. I hate that guy. I hate the way he preaches. Let's torture him to death. It wasn't that they were upset with his healing of people or even the feeding of the 5,000. They hated that he called himself the king, right? Because our species as a whole hates that kind of thing. And there are at least two reasons why we hate when somebody tries to call themselves our king. The first goes way back to Genesis, what theologians call original sin. You know, in Genesis... uh, Chapters 1, 2, and 3, God creates Adam and Eve. He places them in a garden full of trees, dozens, maybe hundreds of trees. God says, you can have all these trees. I give them to you as a gift. And he gave, made one tree off limits. And that one tree represented authority. It answered the question, who was going to be in charge And when Adam and Eve decided to eat from that tree, they were rebelling against the kingship of God. They were saying to God, you know what? No one gets to tell me what to do. This is my life, and I will live it as I see fit. The reason theologians call that original sin is because that changed the soul's DNA for every human being after that. Every human being is built with this natural disinclination for authority, that we resist 
authority. We all want to do what we want to do. And if you doubt that, just take a walk down to our kids' area, right? Anytime this morning. This is a picture of my grandson, Ezekiel. Okay, Ezekiel is my youngest uh, grandson. Uh, he calls me Papa. He's adorable, very bright, gifted, much brighter, probably more gifted than your kids or grandkids. But that's not the point. Not the point. The other day, we were outside. He loves being outside. And it started to drizzle a little bit. Uh, and it wasn't raining really hard, but I knew it was coming. So I started to take him inside. And uh, he didn't want to go. The, the reason, I, but he's, you know, he's only 18 months. He's a peanut. So I got him inside. But that's the only reason I got him inside. If he was my size, he'd still be outside. I'd be in the hospital, right? <laughs> Why? Because he has a resistance to authority, and so do you. Right? So do I. That's why we resonate to poems like Invictus. Right? I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. Frank Sinatra saying, I did it my way. Right? We don't recoil at things like that. We don't say that's, that's preposterous. That's horrible. That's what's wrong with the entire world is people just like that. No. We hum along with Frank Sinatra. Right? We hear somebody say, I am the captain of my soul. And there's something inside of us that says, yes. That's what I want to be. So Jesus, this whole gospel is all about Jesus having authority over everything. Right? He's, he has authority over demons. Right? He has authority over disease. He has authority over nature because he calms the storm. He has authority even over death. And for all that, we say, yes, cool, 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 cool. Right? Then he comes and he says, I have authority over you. And we all go, Whoa, whoa, not so fast. I don't know if I want anybody telling me to do something I desperately don't want to do. I don't know if I want anybody telling me what to do, what I, what I desperately don't want to do. What, I don't know if I want a king. In fact, I'm sure I don't. Now, that's the, the first reason. I told you there were two reasons, though. The, oh, let me, oh, before I get there. If you think that maybe you are the kind of person that really invites the kingship of Jesus into your life, let me ask you this question. How do you deal with pain? I mean, real pain. Like the death of a loved one. The death of a spouse. Or the death of a child. Or a sibling. How do you deal with miscarriages? Deep disappointments? I just always remember how I responded when my little brother was killed. I was so angry with God. What was, I, what was I saying to God when I was angry with him? I was saying exactly what little Ezekiel was saying to me when the, the rain started to come and I tried to get him inside. What I was saying to God is, if I was big enough, this would be my world, not yours. Right? We all have this disinclination to kingship, to authority. But I told you there were two reasons. The second reason is this, that when Jesus claims to be king, he forces us into an all-or-nothing decision with him. And we hate that. But we like to keep our options open. That's why a lot of people make Jesus a great teacher. Right? Because if he's a teacher, then we can receive kind of 
all that he teaches as like suggestions and we can weigh them and then we can, we will still decide how we're going to live, right? Or, or we make him into just kind of a, a savior who will pick us up out of, out of a ditch, dust us off and let us go on our merry way. But Jesus didn't come just to be a savior, to save you from your sins. He came to heal what is broken deep down inside of you. And to do that, he has to be king. But we're not sure we want a king who can tell us what to do with our lives, with our relationships, with our money, with our sexuality. Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey with the sounds of hail to the chief reverberating through the air. Within five days, he is hanging on a cross because people like you and people like me didn't want him to be king, right? Um, C.S. Lewis has this great paragraph in Mere Christianity, and this is what he says. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any of this patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So when Jesus claims to be king, he pushes you to go all or nothing. Either you fall at his feet and welcome him into every area of your life, as your king, or you resist him with all you have. That's the reason the king dies. Second, the way the king dies. I already told you that the passion of the Christ was very, very difficult to watch. And the reason is because it seems like um, all the evil, all the pain that can happen to a human being happens to Jesus in a very compressed amount of time. He's betrayed by his closest friends. He's the victim of terrible injustice. He is mocked, humiliated, and finally hung naked on a cross. And the cruci crucifixion was considered uh, maybe the most cruel way, mode of execution ever invented. It was invented by the Persians and perfected by the Romans. It was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen, no matter what they'd done, because it was considered so inhuman, but that's what they did to Jesus. And Jesus goes through all of this without making a peep until verse 33 and 34. And it says this, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus goes through everything, and when he finally chooses to cry out, he doesn't say, oh, my hands, my hands, or my back, my back, or my feet, my feet. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was losing 
God. You know, verse 33 says this, this darkness fell on the whole land. It's a, this thick supernatural darkness. It's mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Right? And darkness in the Bible always points toward chaos, toward judgment. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God speaks light into darkness, order into chaos. Here, Jesus is the light of the world, and he is being enveloped in darkness. In the book of Colossians, it said that in Jesus, all things are held together. And here, Jesus is unraveling, right? And you know why. The further away someone is from God, the deeper into darkness they are. The further someone is away from God, the more their life begins to unravel and become chaotic. But darkness doesn't just represent chaos. It represents the very judgment of God. In the book of Jeremiah, when Jeremiah is talking about Israel moving far away from God, this is the way he describes it. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void into the heavens, and they had no light. So here's Jesus, who all through Mark has lived the most remarkable life, a life that is absolutely perfect. And here he is experiencing the very judgment of God, and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's actually the language of intimacy, right? There is no greater pain than losing love. Right? And the more and the longer that love is, the deeper the love, the longer it has been in your life, the more excruciating it is when it leaves. That's why it's so excruciating when a spouse dies. And here Jesus is experiencing infinite pain because he, experienced, he has experienced the love of God the Father from infinite past. And here he is losing it. Why? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That the, the judgment of God is poured out on Jesus because it's the judgment that we deserve as ones who have rebelled against the authority of God. And Jesus receives that judgment, and that's why he cries out. And that brings me to my third point, which is the result of the king's death. The result, I love Mark. I love the Gospel of Mark. It is the, um, the shortest of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which means he is very economic in his words. If Mark was preaching this sermon, he would have been done 10 minutes ago. <laughs> uh, he Everything that he says is important, and he flies through the story. And then he gets to verse uh, 37, and he says this, verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. 
Right, that is a shocker, just by the way. If you, when you read this, if you're reading this for the very first time, that's the sentence that you're going, what? Because the whole book of Mark reads like a movie with, a, with an obvious hero. Right? And when you're watching a movie with an obvious hero, and they're, you know, at the end of the movie, they're in this impossible spot, and it seems like they've lost all hope and they're going to die. You know, and the reason it become, it's a great movie is because you know they're going to be rescued. You know their, their followers are going to rally. Something's going to happen. They're not going to die. But here Mark says, Jesus breathes his last, and he dies. And you're just like, so the very next sentence is going to be a really important sentence, right? And if I was writing Mark and running through the story as fast as Mark has run through the story, I would have said, and Jesus breathed his last and he died. And my next sentence would have been, but that's not the end of the story. And I would skip right to chapter 16, where the women come to the empty tomb, which is where we're going to pick up the story next week. But instead, Mark includes these two really weird verses of two unre- seemingly unrelated things. Verse 38, he said, okay, he just says, Jesus breathes his last and dies, the very first thing that happens. Verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. How weird. No explanation. And then he says, and then the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. Why does he do that? Let me start with the temple. The temple was where people could come to encounter God. They could get as close as they could possibly get to the very presence of God. But the temple, uh, I want you to think of it as built in concentric circles. Um, It wasn't built in a circle, but there was an outside court where anybody could go. Uh, and they could get, that's as close as like Gentiles could get to the very presence of God. And then there was a court that was reserved for Jews who, who knew more of what it meant to please God, to make God their king, and they could go to that court. That's as close as they could get. Then there were priests who could get a little bit closer. There was a court of priests. And then there was this little tiny room that was called the Holy of Holies, and that's where this curtain is. And the curtain was like five inches thick. It was like a wall. And no one could go into the Holy of Holies because that represented the very presence of God. And the only person, well, one person could, the high priest, one time a year on the holiest day of the year, which they called Yom Kippur. And when he went in, that was called the Day of Atonement. When he went in, he went in with a sacrifice of an animal who had given their life for to cover any sins that the high priest had. And then the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. And when he did, he went in with a rope tied around his ankle. So if he dropped dead, they could pull him out. Right? The, whole, the whole setup just shouts, you go into God's presence. You go by his rules. You approach God the way God wants you to. You don't go willy-nilly into God's presence. Right, and there's a there's a prop. You know, I, you know how uh, I love props. If you've been coming in any length of time, you know I, I like props. Uh, I used a prop to try to demonstrate this. Some of you might have been here. It's the most dangerous prop I ever did. Uh, but I was trying to show that you don't go willy nilly into uh, the presence of God. You go 
you know, God decides how you approach him. And I likened it to electricity. Like electricity, you approach electricity on its terms, not on yours. Otherwise, it's bad. So I had jumper cables and I had them you know, plugged in somehow in the back. And then I had metal and I, I wanted to put the jumper cables on the metal so you'd see all the sparks that would fly. And it did. It, was, it worked. And I had, a, I had an electrician come up to me afterwards and he was going, don't ever do that again. Right? You, you, you could die. And I, and I remember saying to him, man, I wish you had been in the first service. <laughs> But the temple is trying to tell, tell us something, right? That curtain is telling us something. That you don't approach God on your terms. You approach God on his terms. What Mark says is the moment Jesus dies, that curtain where the holiest man of the holiest group of people on the holiest day could only come in once carrying a blood sacrifice was torn from top to God split that curtain wide open. It's like God was saying, Jesus is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Like from now on, you through Jesus, because of his death on your behalf, there is no longer a separation between you and God. And like to prove his point, Mark's very next verse is about the centurion. You want to know, what, what, what? I mean, the centurion hasn't even been a part of the story. He's never mentioned. And then all of a sudden, he's mentioned here. Why? It's because of what he says. He says, truly, this man was the son of God. Right? Do you remember how Mark starts his gospel? Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. The first person to ever call Jesus that? was the centurion. The guy who was in charge of the execution detail, this hardened soldier who had experienced things that would give you and I nightmares. We'd have PTSD because of what we had done. That's the guy. And it seems like what Mark is saying is this. The temple curtain was torn in two. And the first person who was able to run directly into the arms of God was this centurion. And if that was Mark's intent, you know his message was simply this. If he can, you can. If this centurion, because he sees what Jesus has done and claims Jesus is the Son of God who does it for him, if he can do it, that means no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you can run into the arms of of God. And if you never have, then this day is the day you can and should. And if not this day, then sometime this week. But I also want to tell you this, though, that if you want to be not just forgiven of your sins, but healed in the deepest parts of your soul, then make sure you make Jesus your king in every area, because that's what he came for. The king dies so that he can be your king again and heal what is broken deep down. So great is this king. This is the gospel. 
the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, uh, we come to you, and I am uh, so, so grateful that you, uh, your love uh, was so great for us that you sent Jesus. And Jesus endured all of the hostility and all of the suffering and even your judgment so that we might experience your love, that we might experience wholeness instead of brokenness, that he unraveled so that we could start to come together again. I pray for every person here that we would acknowledge you as the one who paid the price for us, who stood in our place, but also allow you to be king in every area of our lives so that you might heal us. And we pray all this for Jesus' glory and in his name. Amen.